This is Doing Good Through Food. I'm Alex Coffin, and my guest on the show today is Evan Zachary. Evan is a director at Flower City Pickers in Rochester, in Western New York State. Founded in January 2015, Flower City Pickers is a volunteer organization that redistributes leftover and discarded produce from Rochester's public market to local homeless shelters, halfway houses, soup kitchens, food pantries, and other organizations that need food. Since they started, they've prevented over £300,000 of food from going to landfill, which is about 136 tonnes for our UK listeners. Evan is also the coordinator, a coordinator at the Rochester Institute for Technology's Food Share Centre, which is an on-campus food bank at the university. Uh, and he's carrying out both these roles while in his final year of study at RIT as an environmental health and safety and business management student. So clearly, Evan's a busy person with a real passion for sustainability and for food waste in particular. Um, I'm really looking forward to discussing as much of that as possible uh, in the time that we have. And I'm delighted to say, Evan, welcome to Doing Good Through Food. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Um, so I said, as I said in the introduction, you've got this real focus on sustainability. In doing research for this episode, I saw that you're a keen scuba diver. Um, and I was wondering, has, has that shaped your views on the importance of sustainability? And if so, how? Yeah, so I guess if I was going to attribute an aha moment to, you know, my interest in sustainability, um, it's probably rooted in, uh, you know, my interest in marine biology uh, from an early age, loving the and loving everything to do with having an opportunity, really just having the privilege to go diving, which isn't something that a lot of people have access to. But I was lucky enough to, to be able to do uh, visiting a place like Cancun that gets a lot of traffic, seeing, you know, bleaching events, which, you know, at the time, I think I was probably about 12 so it was very impressionable, um, and the scale of that made me want to study conservation, but not having the patience to write an epitaph uh, for a career, essentially, or just uh, watch you know, something that I felt passionately about um, kind of destabilize. Uh, over time, I decided to and take a look farther up the stream to see you know, what could be done uh, to prevent some of that damage from continuing and, and without really the patience to look at uh, regulation uh, in the way that it's sort of carried out in the United States, I kind of ultimately found my way to reuse initiatives and applied sustainability uh, because I, I just keep having less and less patience as time goes on. So the more tangible it can be, uh, you know, sort of the better at this point. For me, so. so this, um, perhaps let's just at the, at the start, we'll just dive into flower city pickers, which is sort of the, the you know, how I, how we, uh, sort of stumbled across each other, I think. And um... right, so I'd be happy to give you kind of the the development or sort of the um, I guess of where we where we come from and what prompted the initiation of Flower City Pickers as an organization and sort of where we are today. So sounds awesome. Let's let's start with that. Where, how did it all begin? So um, in 2015. So uh, to to zoom out just a further, uh, sort of a little bit about the city of Rochester itself. Um, so we're located right on Lake Ontario. We're here in upstate New York. We're kind of one of um, three more urban centers that dot uh, upstate New York. So Syracuse, Buffalo, and Rochester are all within an hour. Well, Rochester's right in the middle. An hour either direction will take you to those two cities. And um, Rochester is uh, an interesting place in the sense that it has some of the highest uh, poverty rates, particularly the highest like children living in poverty rate. I think we're fourth in the nation or something in that neighborhood. So um, Rochester is 
pretty profoundly poor, but only, only what's that, that fact doesn't stand alone. Um, it's contrasted by having some of the most uh, productive, you could say, suburban areas uh, in terms of, of commerce. And, and Rochester also, to sort of add to the disparity of its financial situation, uh, has you know the most, uh, I think it's the highest educated adult population in the upstate region. So because we have two, un- uh, three, four, we've got like four universities relatively close to Rochester and nine universities in the upstate area. So there's a lot of uh, education in this space. And so you really start to notice the contrast uh, that exists in the, in the city um, and in the, in the county because of that. So um, a few years back, uh, you know, Rochester, like many cities in America, does face a, a homeless homeless problem, um, and I should say it's a housing problem. The homeless aren't the the issue; it's it's you know the uh, the circumstance in which they are sort of placed. And uh, there was a homeless encampment uh, called Sanctuary Village that was monitored and supported by two or three different homeless shelters in the area. And um, at a, I, I think it was April of 2015, but I don't, don't quote me on that. And you can find there's a, there's a news, there's some press releases about, you know, this, this playing out that you can still dig up. Um, the folks were asked to vacate. They were offered a night stay in a two night stay in a hotel, which many people took the city up on. It was just a sort of strange offer. And when they came back um, to the encampment, many of their tents had been like flattened, bulldozed, and then moved into a dumpster. So in that play out, some of the people lost uh, their documentation for themselves. They lost you know, what little property they had. And so Corey uh, Humphrey, who is the founder of Flower City Pickers, was living in Rochester at the time. He's since moved back to his home state of Oklahoma, but he remains involved with us, saw this play out and knew um, a few people sort of tangentially uh, associated with this and was mad, you know, I mean, I mean, pissed, forgive my language, but he was, he was upset. And so uh, he started to take action on that by just going to the market, uh, the city of Rochester public market, uh, which was established in 1905. It's a city-owned property that is sort of structured to house and facilitate like local mercantile-based commerce. Um, you've got everything from produce re- re- uh, resellers, people that kind of buy off the like sub-market of the wholesale uh, level, all the way down to, I don't want to say down to, maybe across to uh, people who, you know, produce and ferment and can locally and, and come, you know, once or twice a year to sell, you know, the, their one batch of something. Mm. Is, so is it is it all food um, across the market or is it is it all sorts of, uh, you know, all sorts of goods? So the, the market is uh, all type of stuff and it's it's open, you know, periodically throughout the week, sometimes more more often than not. Um, some days it'll just be non-food items, but food is the most reliably sold thing at the market. It's it, it's the most stable and the most consistent it, uh, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturdays of any given week. Uh, center around food at the market, whereas other events like uh, like a garage sale thrift type get together, it might be once a month, uh, you know, or it's it's also a, a, an event space. So it's where the city will do some concerts, uh, food truck rodeos, which is exactly what it sounds like, um, which is just a big roundup of all the food trucks and, you know, cultural festivals and things like that. So uh, it's it's this cool institution in the Market View Heights neighborhood uh, that's, that's one of the, I think it was the city's largest like public venture in the sense that um it was one of the earliest facilities they built to support the region and uh many states have developed public markets but in most cases uh the public markets have since shut down because they uh, aren't able to be as financially competitive or as reliable as you know uh, supermarket food uh, retailers and things like that but despite a really rough patch in the 80s where the market was almost shut down um it hung in there and now 
it is a huge asset to Rochester, especially because of the economic situation that I mentioned earlier. The, the public market is a place that you can go to and you can get maybe two weeks of food for about $10 um, because you're able to, uh, be, because it's so compact and you have so many different retailers in one place, pricing and timing get really competitive um, because you have wholesalers and like food sailors, you have people shouting and screaming that they've got a whole box of avocados for a dollar um, because they're going to be bad tomorrow and you need to buy them right now. You're not, you're not going to want to miss this deal. You know, they go on and on and on. Um, and so uh, that was where we went to recover food. It was the most, it was the most viable and accessible and like place for, for him to go as opposed to scaling the fence of, you know, a, a Wegmans or an Aldi's or, or something like that. It made sense for Corey to go here because this, there was already a cultural precedent for people coming at the end of the market, taking and distributing food, mostly for themselves, though. So, so he was looking to, at the start, to take it and redistribute it to these particular people, these, uh, these people you mentioned. Yeah, and so it was the, the displacement of that community that kind of brought this initiative to, I think, his mind um, and, and made him want to start doing this. So we have this from really early in operations of, you know, Corey and a few of his friends at the time, uh, just sitting on the sidewalk, you know, with uh, one like dolly and a bunch of boxes of fruit just kind of scattered around, um, just doing it. And they would stuff as they could into his trunk. Um, and then they would scoot that over to uh, some of the shelters where people who had been living in Sanctuary Village had been displaced to. And, and so with, and, and we're seeing this again now, though I won't get into the nitty gritty with uh, the, the details on this, but uh, displacement among homeless community kind of, kind of comes, seems to come in pulses, but I'm, I'm not expert in homelessness. Um, you know, but we are seeing uh, two different uh, affordable housing options in the city of Rochester. Currently, they're kind of gateway housing options um, from being homeless to, to having at least a roof over your head uh, shutting down. And so there's this big pulse coming of displacement. And this was a past instance where something like this was seen. So many of the shelters were under shock and he would be, he would distribute to those currently operating shelters. And that's still what we do um, to sort of fast forward. And, and we'll jump back into the development and some of the issues we've faced. But in terms of where we are now, kind of an organizational front end and back end snapshot, we, um, we've been operating for about three and a half years. Uh, we've recovered about 600,000 as opposed to three. I think we need to, we might, we might update our information somewhere where you found that figure. Um, but we've, we've recovered about 600,000 pounds of food um, we've got data to support about 400,000 of those pounds. So we actually weigh every single like box that we process, uh, or weigh one and count the others and, you know, do the math. And, um, we have, we're currently distributing, I want to say to about 15 different, um, shelters and organizations in the Rochester area, as well as to some organizations that work that, that are not shelters, but work to support, uh, shelters with different services. Uh, so, um, on top of that, we've got a, a small network of farmers uh, now. So we're, we're, we're currently able to accept even the non-edible food waste from, from the market. Uh, and that was one of our earliest initiatives was to build a network of local livestock owners and gardeners, farmers, community gardens, places like that, that had an interest in uh, filling somebody's truck with some pretty nasty looking, uh, but, you know, extremely cool and, 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 and optimal, uh compost. Um, and, and we've We've, we're just now filing for our 501c status. Uh, so our non-profit status, we're just in the process now becoming a tax-exempt organization. So that's kind of where we are. And that, that means that people who, so uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but um, in the States, that means that people, if people donate to you, they can, it's tax deductible. Is that right? Yeah, as, as I understand it, um, and I've got no, I have no idea what I'm doing. My educational background is not in, in any of this. Uh, the business management manner is not really organizational uh, psychology stuff, not uh, I would say a one-to-one, 
transfer. But uh, the reason the United States has tax exempt organizations is because they're considered to be able to provide a social service as good or better as the government. Therefore, if you donate to one of these organizations that the government gives its sort of stamp of approval to, you are essentially paying taxes because you're you're donating to a social service. Um, so there is no there is no program in New York State that does the recovery and redistribution of you know disposal bound perishable food. But it, if the state, it, which is now chewing on our paperwork right now, decides that that's valuable and we we think that they will, um, people will be able to write donations to us off of their taxes. It'll be part of the way they can pay taxes if they choose to. So that's that's a big piece for. Um, organizations that want to like leverage partnerships, maybe with a corporate donor, or um, even you, you know you can write off the donation of equipment or time. So if somebody wants to donate us a truck, we can provide a valuation of that donation, um, and they'll be able to in turn you know write that off. So mm. that could be quite a big thing for your for sort of development from here. So it it has, and and it has been time for us to decide if the the nonprofit route was going to be the best option for us. We really wanted to be sure, and and this is has been and always will be what Flower City Pickers prioritizes, and that's that we are as able to serve the local community um, with as much sort of communication and understanding as possible. We didn't want to incorporate for the sake of our own organizational comfort and like financial viability if it meant that we were going to be unable to serve some of the smaller, unofficially recognized communities that we've had you know, the, the opportunity to work with. So there are... Um, Without like being too specific, there are different shelters and organizations, collectives of people within Rochester because of the poverty situation being what it is, uh, that aren't incorporated, that aren't don't have any sort of official title. And we were concerned that by incorporating, you know, we would be unable to partner with them or would be partnering with them. But after uh, a local law firm was awesome enough to donate some of their time pro bono um, to get our questions answered and to help us with all this paperwork, we learned that we would still be able to do that and would be more sort of secured financially. So. Uh, potentially financially, we would have the option. Uh, and so we, you know, as of about two months ago, um, started the the process of doing all the paperwork and writing bylaws and conflict of interest policy. And I'm not going to talk about paperwork much more than that, because I want your listeners to stay awake. So yeah, we'll all better have everyone turning off. We don't, <laughs> but no important, important stuff. And um, so that I think that sort of sets it all out really well, kind of like where you, where you are, right? Just maybe to kind of dive into the sort of, you know, the, the nuts of you know nuts and bolts of it a bit more there's it seems you know there's the, the three stages if you like from what i can see you you know you do the uh you're collecting produce from the vendors you're sorting it and you're distributing it on to people so maybe, maybe we could kind of like break that up you know a little bit um on the collection uh sort of side of it so you're collecting from vendors and you you spoke about it you know a bit sort of how how you uh how it got started and um, that there was sort of this culture already of people kind of coming at the end of the day. But I was wondering, was there, you know, how did you start getting vendors on board with what you were doing at the at the beginning? And was, because obviously they're still looking to kind of sell what they can at the end of the day, if there are people there looking to pay something. How did you, how did you start going about, um, you know, convincing them to, to give you what they, what they've got? Was there much resistance? You know, how, how was it? The it has been it has been a really rocky road to get to where we are, um, because if you think about our relationship with the vendors, we are essentially asking them for the fact that they are trying to sell at the same exact time they're trying to sell it, um, which creates this really kind of 
you can imagine, it's a contentious and kind of love-hate relationship where they see us coming around and they're like, oh shit, here they come get food for home people again. You know, like, it's, it's a strange complex in that sense because uh, we rely on vendors' support of our program um, and like what we do in order to be able to, to do it. You know, currently the market is the only place that we're collecting food from and, you know, part of that's because it's such a huge point source, but the other part of that is because, um, well, it, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of pieces to that. So in the beginning, um, and, 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 and for us, not all vendors of the market donate. Um, some choose not to. And, you know, we, we don't push people to donate. We don't push people to interact with us. But what we do is we are always there. In three and a half years, we've missed two Saturdays. And every time we go to collect food from a vendor, we try to engage them like people. We try to talk to them because a lot of these people, this is their side job. Coming to the market is not what they, you know, that's not in, in all cases what they do for a living. So we know we're on a first name basis with all of the vendors at the market. And that's only because we just don't skip days. We, we hardly ever take you know, our Saturdays off um, to miss this. And I think that over time, and this really has taken a while, um, people have started to recognize the consistency. They've recognized that we're not just coming out to like grab a free trunk full of food for a potluck we have coming up, that we really are um, out here trying to serve the communities that we can, um, sort of wielding the abundance that they have access to since it's something that they want to do, but it's, you know, they're not in a position where they can take the time to connect with the different communities that are in need and like stay up to date on um, what some of their situations are and what their preferences are. So, uh, and, and, and that's, and, and more recently on a, on a legislative or sort of a legal lens, uh, New York state has recently passed uh, a bolstered tax law for increasing the tax deductible value, specifically the donation of fresh produce to hunger relief agencies. Um, so we, we haven't been able to interface with that for one reason, because it hasn't existed and for another reason, because we're only just now getting incorporated. So, um, you know, that the, there is some state level recognition of the type of work we're doing is as important and as valid. And we're hoping that that will bring some of the rest of the market vendors on board. But to answer your question in short, it's just being consistent, you know, building those relationships, being a person, not being afraid to cut up with them when you see them. Is there a cost for them, for the vendors to dispose of their of their surplus at all, or is it literally is is so? Are, are you potentially saving them a cost at the at the very end of the day, or is or is it just in the bin and that's it? It's funny that you ask me that question now because this is if if I was going to give advice to anybody who's like trying to start a, like sort of a community driven food reuse initiative or food recovery and redistribution initiative, um, it would be to start looking at what your value add and like cost savings are as soon as possible. Um, we also had a difficult relationship with, you know, the market for a while because in order to do what we do, it's logistically and space intensive. Processing 4,000 pounds of food by hand isn't something you can do in an exceptionally tidy way if all you have is a school bus and some folding tables. And that's our situation, work out of a, a bus. And so um, recently I've started to ask some questions and get in the information that I would need to do the calculations for our cost savings to the market, asking questions like, uh, because again, this is a city facility, so the, their waste landscape might be a little different than say, you know, your Aldi's, which might get, get charged per ton or, um, you know, per, per pull, or, you know, the market could just have a flat rate for its, for, for its waste contract. Uh, but that's, in, that's all information that I'm, that I'm getting. While we aren't able to say exactly how much money we're saving the city because we don't know, uh, the, the payment structure of its waste, we are able to point to what we recover um, in a quantitative way and articulate the value of, of that and in terms of 
transferring. So when we collect our data, show the type, category, and quantity of all the food that we process. That uh, when, and when I say category, we, we divvy things out in the three different um, sort of streams. So we just call it A, B, and C. It's easier for people to remember that way. Um, a quality food is the type of food that you might see in a supermarket. Um, you, you don't understand why we even ever end up with this stuff, but it represents the majority of the food that we process. About two thirds of the food that we process is produce that would keep for several days. You know, if you had it in your pantry or if you had it in your fridge. Um, the middle, and and this is the section that I'm most personally fond of because I think it's uh, kind of the like, it's the middle child of food waste that people sort of don't pay attention to, um, which is the type of food where if you saw it in your fridge, you'd be you would kind of say to yourself like, ooh. I got to cook you today. Like it's time for you to go. You know, you're going to eat it still. It's fine. You got to cut that one off. You have to get an extra vigorous wash, but there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, and then C, you know, is, is compost or critter food. If you don't know why you have it in your hands and you don't want it to be in your hands anymore, it's probably, you know, going to fall in that category. And so because we do such weekly in-depth waste audits, we're really able to provide the market with an idea, an idea of what it's sort of waste ecosystem is. Um, that's been really useful to the market as they've, gone out to bid for a contracting uh, or for a compost contract. So, you know, the market has the will to manage its organic waste more sustainably um, to support us, you know, with our food recovery and also to have outlets for, you know, spoiled food. Um, but the, the city of Rochester itself does have a $58 million deficit and the, the market is a, uh, a city facility. So trying to convince people to spend money on a new composting contract is a challenge for them. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes asking to be more sustainable at the market when they're, when the city faces some of the problems that it, that it does, you know, around education and around all the things that public dollars have to go for. Um, so, so we, we can say, Oh, we provide this many meals to shelters and we save them this much money. Um, but, but soon we'll have an idea of our, our cost savings for the market itself. Mm. Yeah. Just, um, so before we move on from the from the vendor side of it, from the collecting side, do you, are you starting to find? I mean, you said you've been established for what three and a half, three three and a half years now. I mean, are you starting to find that vendors are happy or even kind of proud to use their surplus in that way rather than seeing it go to waste? Because usually, when you deal with you know people in the food industry in whatever way, they don't like waste. You know, there's a lot of time and effort has gone into it. They don't want to just see it go in a bin whoever they are so i mean are you, do you do you see them perhaps kind of communicating that to their customers or you know something like that perhaps well no you know nobody has taken a big sign and put it on the front of their stand or back of their stand that says we don't need to flower city bakers although you just gave me the idea to make some of those and see if anybody wants them so thank you for that um i would say that that, that the vendors at the market because it's such a fast-paced environment, it's hard to get a read on them. You're going up, you're asking them in the context of two minutes whether they've got, don uh, got donations or you want them to make a second pass. You're trying not to let the customers see because they know us too. So when they keep us going around, they might get a little more adventurous with haggling or things like that. And so, but but what we did see is when Core Founder, when he moved back to Oklahoma, within the week, um, as I was out collecting and I was out interacting with our, our vendors, people were asking me, you know, hey, where's Corey? You know, where's he's you know what's uh what's happening with fire city pickers oh i saw this in the newsletter he left what's going to happen um so it's one of those things where we don't do a lot of verbal appreciation as we exist but the second that there was this like doubt that we might stop doing what we're doing as we lost who had truly been the sort of well we didn't lose him he still does work for the group but as he you know um moved this beating heart of the organization uh 
people immediately were like, wait, no, <laughs> you know, don't go. So, so we think that we think that while they might not be proud, they're definitely glad to have us around. Um, you know, and it, it's one of those things where we like our existence is a manifestation of the fact that Rochester has problems. So it's something like when you look at us, you're glad we're doing what we're doing, but it's also kind of a reminder that there's a lot of people homelessness, and that's not always pleasant to think about for people. So, so we we sort of we touched on the the second part of it, the kind of the sorting already. You said you know the the quality grades and what have you, your A, B, and C grade. And I think I think we probably sort of covered it, covered what that is. But what um, I was surprised when you said you know so so much of it is the A grade stuff. I mean, why are there kind of typical? Is it just purely stuff that isn't being sold? that day you know if it's got a few days of shelf life on it is it could it not are you having to convince those people to give it up that they would you know otherwise take it and sell it somewhere else or uh what are there particular reasons that 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 you're getting that yeah and let me make sure i understand your question before i try to answer it so you're, you're asking about like, it's it, it's kind of preposterous that the majority of our food waste stream that we interact with is stuff that is still good for a few days uh do, do we have any information why that is or yeah i mean when when you know you've got these one-to-one relationships with with the vendors i mean are they typically sort of saying something you know that is it just purely this is stuff we don't we're not going to sell today or are, are they kind of do they over order i'm just wondering why 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 you know yeah well, well i mean the amount of information we get per you know donation especially per large donation is really minimal um when i go up and talk to a, a vendor depending on who it is our smaller our smaller uh the the folks that donate to us in smaller quantities are tend to be the people that i have more time to talk to the people who are really giving us you know 800 pound pallets of broccoli will like point and grunt and that's kind of a, a sign that like that that pallet is going to be coming to us soon and that's all i get you know that's that's all i get when we see that yeah yep yeah, yeah. and and i think that you know that is and the, the presence of that stuff um, is just is, is a product of the way. Now, now I'm I'm extrapolating a little bit, but I do know a little bit about how these dis, these produce distributors get their inventory. This is the stuff that um, a, a, a food retailer, a supermarket, will order, stock most of, and have perhaps uh, a quarter of a trailer, you know, left of let's say broccoli, since we're talking about broccoli today, and um, that food will go back on market and pretty much the second they make the decision that they're not going to try to stock this, they're going to try to resell it. The clock starts ticking. Um, and sometimes they don't always make it. I mean, sometimes we get a whole pallet of stuff that is completely spoiled, dropped off in, you know, our sorting area and we get no context for it. You know, it's just there and we have a giant tower of, you know, grapes and are like, well, shit, you know, what do I do? Um, but, but, but a lot of times, you know, uh, it's just the time piece uh, that puts in that position. Um, the market has some storage, they have some warehouses. They will sometimes take food back that doesn't sell one week and they'll try to take it to the next week. Um, we tend to see most of that end up with us as in end up not being able to be sold. But a lot of it is just quantity. There's only so much demand for these certain types of food. And I think that we, I, I kind of speculate that the presence of all that food at the market is a product of the consumer expectation of abundance in a supermarket. Um, when we go to um, any, our local, you know, our local grocery store, we kind of expect to see big piles of certain kinds of food it's part of the experience of going there it's i mean it's fun honestly and i won't pretend that it's not you know i'm a i'm a consumerist american although i try not to be like like anybody else here and and you know walking around the heaping shelves makes you feel kind of stable it makes you feel safe it would feel weird if you went into your grocery store and there's like three heads of broccoli there and like a couple apples it was all you needed but you'd be like what's going on like what's wrong you know it's 
it's that ingrained in us, that level of abundance is so expected that uh, it would be perceived as like incorrect or wrong if we went to a supermarket and there wasn't that huge level of abundance. So there's this, I think there's a certain amount of consumer pressure um, and industry response that creates these like sub markets of food that are just logistical nightmares. I mean, the, the rate at which the stuff has to get moved around relative to the time that it has to do it in relative to all the places that it could go, that it would have value is a lot to put together, but it is what we're trying to do. The last, the last part, I suppose, is is that the kind of the redistribution. Let's and I'd, I'd like to just a few questions on that. I suppose you said you're supplying fifteen organisations. I think how how do you how do you find organisations to supply? I suppose is my first question. Yeah, typically, typically they find us. I mean, most of the time um, they reach out to us because the market is such a public space. People just walk up and say, "I um, I'm on the word for this shelter," or I. I have some family member here. Do you mind if I put you in touch? And we have a, a shelter coordinator who kind of takes it there from there and builds that relationship. And there was one, uh, before I forget, one piece I want to circle back to with the sorting process for this. Um, and this also plays into the distribution piece. Truly, it plays into each part of what we do. Um, Fire City Pickers is ex- an exclusively volunteer-supported organization. Um, we've only ever had, I think, probably maybe no more than or right around $10,000 like flow through the organization um, since we've got going, you know. So if you think about the dollar into to pounds of produce out, we're, we're a pretty good deal. Uh, I consider it a pretty good investment in that sense. But, but we're only able to do that because all of our sorting, which is done by hand, is done by volunteer hands. Um, people from different uh, churches, uh, especially colleges in the area. I mentioned that we have a lot of those around here. Students love to come out and work with us. Um, because for, for a couple of reasons, I mean, one, it's fun, it's communal, um, it's tangible, it's hands-on, you get to see your impact at the end of the day, you can get a number for it, you know, because we, we run data throughout the day. And so by the end of the day, you can hear, oh, it's 4,000 pounds of food today. And that feels good. Um, but volunteers also go home with their own box of produce, you know, because there is just truly so much. We actually have pretty consistently more food than we have outlets for. I mean, that's, and that's just one, I mean, think about the, the fact that that is just one publicly owned food, you know, retail, not even a not even a supermarket. You have that level of, of abundance. But. And, that, and like you said, not not even all of it. That's only the it's only the vendors who would who will give you the food, and that that's too much for the people that you've got. But there are, there are a few pieces to that we recognize. One thing that, that kind of situation tells us is that we don't have enough partners. That we don't have enough outlets for the food. Um, you know the. The uh, food waste prevention hierarchy or the food waste hierarchy tells us the first thing we should do with uh, food is just feed it to people, you know. And then one of the last things we should do is, is compost it. And the last thing we should do is, is landfill it. And we're often in a situation where you know, we are composting perfectly out of food. Um, and part of, part of that is just because, you know, we're asking everybody to do all of the maintenance and the development and the building of these relationships on our time. We, can't, we haven't been in a position financially where we can compensate anybody yet. But we are proud of what we've been able to accomplish. Like, if, if you consider that relative to how much resources we have to do it with. Um, so if I were a new shelter organization in Rochester area and I wanted to start receiving food from Fire City Pickers, it's a really, really request. I'm reaching out to you, distribution at firecitypickers.com. We would ask you how many boxes, how many boxes you wanted, whether you could uh, pick it up or whether we needed to drop it off. And within the next week, you would start receiving boxes from us. And are, are there particular sort of criteria that, that you need to check off with people or is it, how, how would that work? We have no formal vetting process. We don't require a demonstration of need. We've, we've never asked people to say, um, now part of this is because we haven't reached the, the limit of our supply 
Um, so if we, if we ever find ourselves in a position where more people are asking for food and we currently have access to food for, we're going to do two things. We're going to start trying to find more sources of food, first and foremost, so that we can serve those communities. But second off, you know, we're going to start looking at, with a little more scrutiny than we already do, how many um, people do each of these organizations you know, serve? Um, we're able to send volunteers home with food and we're able to send you know, a volunteer coordinators home with food because there's just too much of it. Um, the practices like that might be a little more, you know, tightly wound and controlled when we, when we hit that limit. And, and we suspect we will. I mean, it's just, it's a matter of, we, we added two new shelters last week. Um, some shelters only ask for help from us seasonally. You know, we're working with 15 right now, but there are well over, God, I don't even know what number to put to it. There are a lot of aid you know, organizations, shelters, pantries, special interest groups as well. I mean, some of the groups we distribute to work not with people who are homeless, but with people who have recently uh, immigrated here. So one of the big, uh, in fact, one of our biggest recipients is, uh, I don't know if they're an organization or not, so I'm going to leave the name of the group out of it, um, but they work with refugee families that have recently settled in Rochester, um, and they like working with us a lot. Uh, it was one of the things that they pointed out in the documentary, because things like, you know, kohlrabi and tallafirgord and types of, like, vegetables that are not actually very common in the United States and then able to cook food that are comfortable and feel, like, culturally relevant cooking. Um, and so, you know, we, we tried to, we just added a shelter that was specifically with um, veterans. Uh, uh, so trying to serve that community, which has kind of been through a lot. Um, we, and, and we, but on the flip side, and, and now I'm just sort of divulging into how proud I am of how like, intersectional this group has become because of the, the community-driven nature of it. Uh, our Tuesday and Thursday recoveries um, are facilitated by, you know, us, but, but they're staffed and volunteered by a group called uh, Heritage Christian Services which works with adults with developmental disabilities and they, they work to like provide experiences for them. So they take them on trips, they take them volunteering and we're one of the, the groups that they work with. So we have about 10 adults come out and work with us uh, on those Tuesday and Thursday days. So, you know, and, and, and then on those days we distribute a little bit less, but the distribution piece uh, is, is where a lot of these relationships start. And that's, that's sort of the, the big loop that I just ran us in was this is how we make friends. You know, it's pretty easy to make friends when you say, Hey, do you want, or 300 pounds of fresh produce, you know, like people, it's, it's a lot easier than, um, you know, a week or, or however frequently they want it. But uh, that's where a lot of our growth has come from is in what we're able to, you know, provide and how we're able to serve. Mm. So you, you said before you're entirely volunteer staffed operated and how, how many volunteers sort of typically work for you or currently work for you? I think you said, you said there's a sort of seasonal, pattern but i mean like roughly what kind of scale are you on so to do to run around early as in me not pulling my hair out and trying to do 10 million things at once or the coordinators not being in a position either and the coordinators are kind of our core team that are there every week um we need between 10 and 15 hands uh, on deck to help with sorting to help go out with collectors <clears throat> and in some cases you know if it's convenient for them to help with deliveries you know we don't have anybody to swing too far that way but if they're going to pass by shelter on their way home we're going to throw a box in their trunk and then you know the volume get the experience of passing and that's all they want to um, I shouldn't say fun. It's not fun. It's not like a haha woohoo fun. It's like it's important. I'm glad you bring this, you know. And um, that that, that uh, rotates on a weekly basis. You you know, I think, and it tends to fill up in advance too. We're finally in this position. Where we're not begging people to come out every week, but we were actually booked. Um, you know, I think at this point, like a month and a half out from now. So if you wanted to sign up to work with us, uh, you know, you would, you would need to be signed up at this point for like um, June or July to, to to come out and and work with our team. Um, which, you know, for anybody listening, that's two months from now. Uh, you know, and so the volunteer piece, I think 
I certainly, as someone who's only come into directing the organization more recently and working in a more administrative capacity, you know, within the past year, um, kind of take for granted because it's just the city really comes out. I mean, people don't hesitate to show up. So we're, we're constantly enormously grateful for that. We, we cannot do enough to show gratitude for our volunteers um, for the amount of time, you know, and, and effort they us. And this is year round. Uh, that's something else to think about is like working with us is not always pleasant. Um, it's gratifying and it's tangible. And, you know, yes, you get to take some free food home. But Rochester is one of the, you know, snowiest, uh, coldest, <laughs> most intimate cities in the United States. Uh, you know, we're, we're basically Canada. We're right up there. And so we get slammed with, you know, snow and, and we're outside. The market is an outdoor venue. Um, so we pitch tents. We put up propane heaters. We put wall, like we throw up sidewalls in the tents. And when people aren't sorting like wet vegetables with like, reusable cloth gloves they're trying to stay warm in the bus so it's not easy um and people are not that way you know they they just keep showing up so we're i, I cannot restate how grateful we are for that that's awesome and so if, if people if someone's listening and does want to get involved it, how how do they go about doing that yeah um there's all, I mean, there's the, the, the sort of central i don't want to say base level because that makes it sound and, and you can get with our them. um if you want not you want to sort you want to be right down front line uh, and have decided to come out that week um, right on the homepage of our website, uh, which is flowercitypickers.com, uh, is, is a button that says volunteer, and that'll take you straight to the calendar. Once you're on the calendar, you can click a slot, and boom, you'll get a, you'll get a text message, you'll get an email that reminds you that you signed up, you know, I think it's a week in advance or a couple days in advance. Um, but on a, you know, there are a lot of different ways that a person can, can integrate with us and work with us. Um, soon, we think we'll be at a stage where we're going to be looking for additional donors of food. So if, if somebody has access to, and we have, we, we already have some rock stars out in the community, uh, a few nice individuals that work for grocery stores that have arranged to have like these grocery stores don't usually donate because of these individuals, these grocery stores are donating and the grocery stores might not know that, um, you know, these people kind of ri- take some risks for us and it really helps because it really increases the quality of food that we have access to. Um, so if you want to, if you want to be a little bit of a Robin hood and you work for a grocery store in the upstate New York region, please talk to me. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, otherwise, uh, and same thing on the back end, if you're connected to communities that need help, um, then reach out because we can, we can arrange something. Uh, so any, any point along that, we do, uh, you know, is, is beneficial. I'd love to just, um, touch a bit on sort of, you know, future, future plans for the organization. Cause it sounds like you're, you're sort of a. It's picking up momentum, you know. You, the, I think I gave, I said three hundred thousand pounds of food, and you said six hundred. So it's, it seems like the kind of pace of things is increasing. And uh, you know, like you just said, you're at the point of looking for more donors and what have you. Um, have you got plans to sort of start looking perhaps at other markets or sort of take it um, take it outside of Rochester? Yeah. So we are looking at a lot of different expansion prospects. Um, the challenge is deciding what direction we want to grow in first. So I'll, I'll kind of, and, and you know, you've gotten yourself into that because you've allowed me to dream and, and I consistently get ahead of myself. So this is, this is my thing to talk about. Um, we're looking at growing in a few different ways. One that we hope will sort of enable us to continue um, to be stable and to finance the operations that we do take on is looking at like creative um, and still essential to our mission ways to develop financially. So can we start to, um, can we start to preserve and sell some of the produce that, for example, we get 800 pounds of it, it's all good, our shelters don't want it all, if we don't do something with it by next week, it'll be bad. 
then at that stage, we're comfortable looking at, okay, how can we turn this into a resource for us? You know, our first, our first priority is to serve the community. If we do something that keep, enables us to continue doing that, we're looking at dehydrating food. Um, so we're, we're really interested in like solar dehydration right now. We're really interested in um, the pay-as-you-feel sort of secondhand food markets that we've seen cropping up. Um, in, I, I, it seems like especially in the UK, I don't know what y'all are up to over there with food waste, but it really seems to be making a lot of a lot of noise. At least I, I hope it's working well, but it definitely is audible from over here. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, and and you know, but we we want to start. It's it's interesting because there are already organizations in the area that fight hunger. Um, we're really interested in you know getting creative with how we can not just treat hunger, but how we can start to hack at its, at, at its root and how we can also help participate in like pollution prevention in the first place. So um, at, in terms of the getting at the root of hunger, um, we're getting partnerships started with regards to um, like cooking and nutrition education, using the food that we have access to as a platform for that. Um, so some yeah, much more educated people than me uh, and, and our organization are starting to feel out how we can get some food education going um, we include additional pamphlets with the boxes we distribute to try and get that information out as well. And um, oh, what was that? What was that a piece that I just mentioned? So uh, there's there's the education piece, and um, I, I think that in terms of locations and and partnerships, we we fit the niche of the short term. We don't work with non-perishables almost at all. Um, if we get any like rice or spices or anything like that, it's a real like treat for us. We almost never get stuff like that. Um, for obvious reasons, right? It's not going to go bad. So people aren't going to give it to us. Uh, there's a huge organization that they work primarily in perishables, but they also work on perishables. Um, they work more at the uh, food supply producer side. So they'll get a thousand pounds of apples, you know, in, in a load and they'll distribute that to their network. Um, we, we're interested in modeling ourselves after organizations. Like we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. If you take 412 Food Rescue in Pittsburgh, for example, Pittsburgh's my hometown. Um, and I think what that organization is doing is remarkable where they have this app-based community-driven like almost Uber or Lyft-esque approach to food waste, where they have this fleet of volunteers that is this constant like cloud addressing non-point sources of food waste. So volunteers will get a ping on their phone, the layout of a route for them from a pickup to a delivery site. And all the volunteer needs to do is carry their phone and have the app turned on. And they'll get notifications when there's work to do. Um, we're looking at, you know, and, and now that's from, an, that's from a non-point source approach. Uh, which we think is important because there's a lot of food waste that happens, you know, beyond just places like the market. But we're also looking at modeling after organizations like Food Forward in, um, <clears throat> you've probably heard of them. They are like the titanic, massive Goliath of our organization on steroids, uh, <laughs> you know, out in uh, Southern California. They, they pull a month what we've pulled in, you know, three years. I think they do about 600,000 pounds, you know, every month. So they're gleaning at the farm level. They are um, helping with like, sort of distribution hiccups like the ones that we deal with the symptoms of they sort of attack those a little earlier a little more preemptively when the stuff is still on the truck which god that would make our life so much easier um so i mean there's there's a million different directions that we want to run right now uh especially now that we're getting incorporated the question is you know prioritizing to bring that growth so that um the rest of it can come with as much quality and timeliness as, as you know is possible so uh we really are trying to you know research and for anybody listening that, that has you know, seeing successful instances of like the prioritization of that growth. Those are things we want to hear about. Those are things we want to learn more about, you know, myself in particular. And I know other members of our board are, are you know, super fascinated with that. Okay. Well, definitely any, anybody listening with uh, something to say on that can get in touch with, uh, get in touch with you through the website or, or 
you know, one one of the channels that way. Um, and I, th- I think there might be a few. I might I might have some ideas. I'll, I'll put some thoughts into that as well. Um, I was thinking another thing. I was thinking was um, or wondering is has anybody kind of approached you? I suppose you know they're almost the flip side of that. Has anybody kind of approached you for mentoring or like as you know for consultants saying I want to? I'm thinking of I'd love to set up a similar scheme in my local area. How do I do it? Um, we are. I would say that in regards to Flower City Pickers and food recovery, we haven't had a whole lot of inquiries about, you know, oh, how did you get this started? And I think part of that is because you can look at us and you can pretty much tell, you know, we, uh, the, the operation is not complicated, um, but it is in that way. It's really uh, kind of exists as an example of like, hey, this is something you can do, right? Do you have folding tables? Do you have, you know, a a couple people, great. You can start a food recovery group. You know, it's not mm-hmm. not complicated. Um, we, you know, I, I have received some like kind of best practice inquiries. Have have actually done a little bit of consulting um, in a different sort of reuse arena uh, that also has a food element to it, which is uh, targeting big um, point source like uh, I guess discharges of of um usable you know goods furniture food and things like that from universities at the end of a, a given school year um i did a little bit of work for goodwill industries international uh where they wanted sort of a best practice manual for how to work with colleges and universities to recover as much as they could and not have stuff go to waste because it comes in such a big pulse um right there over that one week um, and i did that work through uh plan the post landfill action network which is a nonprofit based out of philadelphia that does zero waste work with college campuses um and you know in that area uh which which has a big food recovery piece to it uh students um eat a lot of ramen and ramen lasts forever and they eat a lot of easy mac and peanut butter and all of those things are still good for a long time and you know uh that stuff all gets wrapped up in the waste stream and so our you know, with, with, with that arena, um, I've been helping some students at the University of Buffalo just as sort of an advisory standpoint, answering questions, um, looking at where they can get some of their materials from, strategies for collection, because those operations are much less reliable, you know, whereas ours is uh, at the public market, it's pretty consistent and it's pretty straightforward. Programs like that have a lot of moving parts. Um, they can be pretty complex, but they, they can create a lot of value for a campus. And and this is this is relevant not only to college campuses, but to any um, space that generates a lot of usable material. Because you know what we've been able to do with that is we've been able to take um, about each year we recover about like eight tractor trailers worth of furniture. Um, we recover probably. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good metric for this. We recover. No, we resell everything at about 90% off to the students that move back in because they all need the same things, right? Everybody, you know, they all want a mini fridge and everybody that's leaving is getting rid of their mini fridge. And so we end up with 90 mini fridges and we sell them all back for like, you know, 80% off of their retail value. And we're still able to realize, you know, each year we we bring in about twenty four to $25,000 by selling people their own garbage. You know, like this is, it's a strange concept, but we use that money to, uh, fund a student staff and so you know the the difference between these types of initiatives is like how culturally coherent they are to the communities that they serve it would be 
in my opinion, pretty inappropriate for Flower City Pickers to ever charge our shelter partners for our, our boxes of produce. It's kind of tone deaf to the fact that um, students at a private school might be in in some cases, not in all, but in, in, in some cases more uh, financially equipped to pay for reused goods, whereas um, homeless and displaced communities, refugee communities, um, you know, in the Rochester area uh, might not be. And so, you know, uh, it's not a direct, it's not directly transferable, but you really can turn waste streams into, you know, value streams. Uh, if you time it, you, you know, if you, if you get the right timing and you're sort of, um, have, you know, a low cost, like community partnership driven ways to process that waste. Um, you can really, I mean, for, you know, Flower City Pickers does generate revenue in a different way, right? Soon we're going to be able to provide tax write-offs and that's going to benefit our vendors um, that might position our vendors to donate, you know, more directly to the shelters, but all that remains to be seen as to how that'll play out. Another, another sort of thought, thought I had, I suppose, about the kind of about the future, but it's, it's, um, I suppose it's going back to something that we talked about right at the beginning, which was, I was wondering if, if do you think it's possible to engage with the market as a whole so that, all surplus from the market goes to you rather than you having to kind of deal with individual vendors. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think that's possible and do you think that would be a good idea, even if it were? Mm -hmm. So um, the, the way the market is structurally set up is that it is pretty much nothing more than a couple pavilions that are rented or leased. Um, to individuals and businesses, the and and that's pretty much it. Most of the vendors are paying to be there at the market, and because the money is flowing from the vendors to the market, the ability of the market to ask for, a, you know, expansions of the service of the vendors is limited. Um, however, you know, because we've been as reliable as we've been, because we're growing, um, the market is, you know. I think considering the prospect of saying to the vendors, it's, it's expected that you donate to flower city pickers. Um, but the, but just by the way that relationship is set up, the market can't force anybody to do anything. It's a public, it's a public facility. People come and they sell things as they will. Um, you know, I get really excited when I see, uh, private enterprises saying we will donate all edible food or, you know, I think it's Tesco that's doing the no food waste that's by right. whenever it is. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a huge commitment and, and in it's one of the, it's one of the benefits, uh, one of the, both the, I think the benefits and drawbacks of like the private sector is you can really get top down mandates like that. And they are, you are obligated to carry them through mm. the spaces that we work in just aren't, aren't that way. It's, it's a lot looser. It's a lot less formal. Um, so it's, it's uh, definitely a challenge there. Mm. And you, I suppose one one kind of other well, the sort of future bit, and um, you talked at the, I think you mentioned really early on just about making partnerships with producers, kind of with with farms and what have you. But it was, I think, it was sort of to take your C C quality produce. Do you do you sort of foresee any partnerships where they where you might take food? from them you know food at the farm gate that's kind of a or b oh, yeah i mean is that is that a way you'd like to take it i mean i i would love to and and this this sort of is is one example of us trying to model a little bit after food forward and how they've grown and, and how they operate 
um, as I understand it, because of the cosmetic standards of, you know, the food retail market, much of the food we produce doesn't even manage to leave the farm. And our, you know, our shelter partners do not care if their like apple has a bulbous like outgrowth, mm-hmm. you know, they don't care. Um, they're, you know, it, it's actually kind of like, we have a fun time with it when we get food like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we would love to now, now most of the farms and livestock owners that we distribute to now are really small. They're family farms. Um, the, in some cases, these are people who are keeping personal livestock and we work with them only because we need an outlet for the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we, you know, as we grow, there is there is one partner uh, there is one farm one of the larger relative to proximity to the city farms that the city is actually looking at partnering with with regards to compost um there are some really cool instances where even that compost like even that stream uh you can get value from the the example that jumps to my mind is the way Texas A&M, which is a technical, you know, I think it's a technical university down in Texas, uh, has a program called Bobcat Blend, um, where all uh, campus food scraps are now, you can only get real estate and the amount of space to do something like this in a place like Texas, but the, the model's transferable. Um, they have uh, a composting site where they process their food waste and they take that uh, compost resulting from that and they sell it at their local public market. Um, it's very, you know, conceivable that we would have a farming partner who agrees to designate a portion of their property to the processing of food waste, who then returns the finished compost product to the market and the sale of that product, uh, and the, and the, you know, revenue from that is divvied up proportionally among the, the stakeholders in it. So the farm for the space that it occupies us for the, like, Depackaging and contamination control that we would be responsible for in that process, and you know, there's this there's this idea I think that you know uh, waste is a is a symptom of a system failure and therefore it represents an opportunity for you know improvement. But I think it's 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 even um, it's it's better than that in the sense that it's not just an opportunity to say oh well here's a place for me to do some work you know oh boy mm. uh waste is waste means that there are projects to do great more work you know it's it's um just an opportunity uh not just an opportunity to do more work it's it is a place where you can really realize some like financial advantages if if you're uh you make you know a slightly longer term investment mm-hmm. you know right I, I'm, I'm not in a position, uh, experientially speaking, to talk ROIs and to talk, well, this project took this long to pay itself off and da 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 da, da. Like, But I, I, I am able to research and see examples of that happening out in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you had some, you've worked with some other projects. Uh, it's sort of stuff that we've talked about kind of off mic and, and you know, in the, in the research, I've seen it as well. You've worked with, um, I mentioned the, the food bank through the through the university there's um and you you telling me about the organization that supplies it um goodbye goodbye and 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 sort of your experience with that i does i wonder if you just want to sort of uh, what are the sort of similarities with that i mean it, there seems to be a number of themes going through all of this and um i think you kind of touched on it right at the beginning your the way that you see the kind of opportunity that you see food 
waste to be? I mean, what, maybe you could explain that just a, a bit. Yeah, so um, I found a lot of like social value in getting involved in like the environmental movement uh, when I came to came to school. It's where I met a lot of the people that I'm now closest to. Um, being a part of purpose-driven communities is one of the most important things in the world to me. Um, still is, and I think it always will be. And it was something that I only discovered recently. So that's kind of the one piece of the the, the groundwork for this. In, in an earlier podcast of yours uh, that I listened to just the other day <laughs> was uh, the mainstreaming sustainability one. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. You know, And so as I've, as I've found for myself that it was really gratifying and socially beneficial to get involved in these movements, um, I, I've, I've come to view waste as a arena or uh, an area in which you can create an opportunity for like anybody who can pick something up and put it down again to have an experience with sustainability that they will remember that will be really gratifying for them. I think a lot of people look at uh, sustainability related issues, um, poverty, climate change, and feel, you know, dwarfed by the magnitude of the problem. And you get this like static friction effect where it's going to be so much effort to start. And, you know, you'll realize perhaps so little result that you don't ever start at all. And I think there's a, there's a pretty large majority of the population that look at this issue and say, well, that's utterly massive. I don't know what to do. And they end up doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to fault them for that. I mean, these are big problems. But if you can, if you can take some garbage <laughs> and you can turn it into an experience for somebody where they can get to the end of working, you know, for three hours in a comfortable environment surrounded by decent people. And at the end of it, they can point to something and say, yeah, we did that. And like, yeah, there's, that's our drop in the bucket today. Um, you know, it's more than just a case of the warm fuzzies that they're going to walk away with. They are going to walk away with knowing that like, oh, wait, I can, I can do something here. Um, and not only can I do something here, but I can do it around people. Cause like you, you can get somebody to show up if they care about a cause you care about, but they'll like keep coming back if they also care about the other people that are in that space. And that's been the number one thing that I think I've learned so far and is the common thread between most of my projects so far has been, um, using waste as a social civic engagement platform, um, and giving people a space to like have that experience where they feel like they can make a difference and actually make a difference. You know, it's not just a feeling um, you're able to, you know, come away with a huge gymnasium full of furniture that would have been in the landfill or, you know, 600,000 pounds of food that also would have been in the landfill. So you can, you don't have to water down your impacts just to give people that experience. Uh, you can, you can do both. And then that's, that's, I, I think the, what what feels I, I hope i've answered your question i think it was a common thread kind of question but um that's i think what it would be no and no, i think you have and I, and I think it's really it's interesting i i've asked i've always explicitly asked a, f a number of people particularly the ones who were looking at food waste whether they um whether they felt positive basically about the future because it's it it's often presented in such overwhelming terms you know you're talking about yeah, um, yeah. football fields full of whatever you know when people try to sort of conceptualize the amount the scale of the problem they're dealing with you know you you, you yeah. in trying to do that i think you run the risk of making it seem so huge and so uh 
so you know just such a such a big and uh and sort of almost remote i, I don't know quite what the word is but just such, such a big and overwhelming thing that like you say people well, struggle to sort of think okay I, I understand the urgency of it but how am i going to do anything about it and you know the reaction is to shy away from that so it's mm-hmm. it's definitely something i'm, I'm fascinated in about generally. yeah and it i think it, it can feel if you aren't if you are only applying waste to the and and the opportunities of waste in an environmental way i think you're pretty much guaranteed to feel like the, your project is like sisyphean mm-hmm. you just keep pushing that boulder up the hill and it just keeps on rolling back down i once did the math for uh, the rate, I think it was like the rate at which food is wasted in the United States relative to how many pounds of food we've recovered in Flower City Pickers. It was like, oh, how many, how much time of food waste do we offset in a year in America? Mm. And what I learned, it was it was a couple seconds, you know, like we are truly a drop in the bucket. And now that's not information that I'm going to go blabbing about to our volunteers because that's not going to feel very good for them. But, you know, that's only if you look at just the waste numbers. If you looked at like our impact on food waste nationally, you know, it's it it's almost negligible. But our impact on Rochester socially, um, from the nutrition standpoint, from community stability standpoint, um, some of the places we distribute to work specifically with kids. And so there's this educational and, and like development element of what we do, then then it doesn't start to feel Sisyphean anymore. You know, because and and it's the same way with Goodbye Goodbye. We donate to a lot of different community organizations. We have like that program itself has 13 different shelter partners. Mm -hmm. Um, Some partners, you know, as more recently out of the country, we were donating to Puerto Rico uh, before they were having issues. And our donations were actually finally getting down there just after the hurricane. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can see, you know, if if you take that, I think more... um, intersectional approach to looking at the impact of your group and like integrate that into how you grow your organization you know if because if we if we were focused just on waste we'd be a composting company we would try to develop some sort of competitive solution for the market to either get its uh food waste to a digester or to a composter um and that would be the end of the story you know but coming at it with this social lens lens makes it more gratifying both for me and for our volunteers that's really this that's fascinating stuff and it's, it's sort of making me think think as you're saying it i think it's it's something it's something that i've seen other other people that i've spoken to i've seen it in their projects but i don't think i've kind of really articulated it in quite so clearly but that's really it's fascinating stuff it really is um thanks alex i I think we're going to have to start drawing it to a close. Unfortunately, we're, we're sure, sort of. Sure. Um, I think we could we could keep talking, but we, you know, I think we'll wrap it up just for for our yep, sakes, yep. for our listeners, for for everybody else. Um, yeah. And there's a few there's a few sort of uh, not standard questions, but um, there's a couple of questions I like to ask. Yeah, yeah. I guess to just sort of uh, to draw things together. So, um, I'd like to ask you in the context of food if i say success Mm -hmm. is there someone that you think of and if so why um is there a person i think of successful with regards to food yeah i mean however Um, when i define yeah yeah and whatever you know um 
I think that, you know, in terms of an individual person that I like know and can relate to, it, it would be Corey. It would be the person that founded this organization mm -hmm. because while this organization has a lot of room to grow, um, I look at, you know, Corey doesn't have a background in waste. Corey doesn't have a background in, um, you know, like poverty or homelessness or social services or anything like that. And, and stands as this example of like, yeah, you don't really, you just need to show up. You just need to work hard and you can, you can make some good happen. Um, more, more broadly, you know, there are, like I said, organizations like food forward organizations like 412 food rescue. I look at them through a more, you know, technical applied, uh, here are great examples of organizations that are mm -hmm. like leading in, in the space that I'm working in. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of like you said, with the, um, that kind of initial static or the sort of the inertia, the, some, the person who mm -hmm. kind of breaks through that and gets something going. That's, that's, yeah. that's a huge thing. That really is. Yeah. Cause it, that takes, it takes more, it takes more work to start than it does to keep going. Yeah. So people who are able to, to do both is, 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 admirable absolutely um i'll also ask you are there do you have any like you say we, we said you're you're a busy person you like to like to keep busy lots of projects and what have you uh well you said to me you're you're graduating in like two or three weeks so it really is yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, it's coming up, going it's coming up. um do you have sort of daily habits routines that kind of thing that's that that you rely on that sort of contribute to you being able to do all of that um i think so i mean i uh being busy throughout college has taught me and, and i don't i don't mean as in oh and now i have all the answers duh, duh, duh. like no of course i don't mm. um but like one of the things that i've learned is that like work-life definition is super important um and and uh you know i think i think the self-care like mentality might be just a little played out and a little bit overdone, but it is really important to um, practice some things that are good for you. Like for me, you know, I really enjoy, um, I like to read. I'm a serial podcast fiend. Like my feed is <laughs> super, I pretty much have a podcast on all the time. Mm. Uh, but, but you know, for, for me, uh, bouldering has been a really good outlet for me. Um, finding something physical, like an outlet like that, uh, where it's, it's goal oriented and where you can see your improvement, um, has been really, really valuable for me. So I, I would say that, that between reading and a little bit of like exercises is kind of the formula for me, at least. Sounds pretty good. I can yeah, appreciate all of yeah. that. All right. Look, thank you. Thank you. I think we're going to leave it there. Um, so oh, cool. thank you for your time. It's been really, it's been fascinating. Um, really yeah. interesting to sort of dive into all of that. Would you like to sort of leave anybody, uh, leave a sort of final message, a final kind of, you know, where, where, where people should yeah. find you, um, sure. that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, the best way to get in touch with me and I know I've dropped a couple breadcrumbs throughout this podcast of like, if you know about this, please talk to me. I'm desperate. <laughs> uh, I can be reached at Evan at flowercitypickers.com. That's F L O W E R city pickers, not F L O U R. Um, I've had that issue come up a couple times now. <laughs> um, 
people think bread and they think, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, or you can learn more about flower city pickers on our website, sure. uh, flowercitypickers.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, all those places. There's a, there's a great, it's the same documentary I sent to you. If you want to get kind of like a Facebook, a compact Facebook feed sized overview of what we do. Uh, there's a, there's an awesome documentary on our website, uh, by Alex Freeman, uh, who produced this short film about us that I would encourage people to check out to get an overview. Brilliant. Well, yeah, if you're listening in, thank you for your time. Do that. Uh, do go to their website and, and check out that video. It is really, it sort of paints the picture of everything that we've talked about today. So I'd, I'd really suggest you yeah. do it. Um, okay. We'll, we'll leave it there again. Thank you for your time. It's yeah. been great. And Alex, thank you so much for having me on and, and for everybody listening, go out and play with some garbage. I promise it's worth it. There you go. <laughs> Good advice. We'll leave it there. Thank you. All right. Cool.